Welcome to Shift with CJ. I'm your host CJ and together we will explore the areas of health, human performance, biohacking, psychology and much more that will inspire you to become the best version of yourself. As we grow up, we put on many characters or hats. It all starts with being a child, then a student, then an employee, maybe an employer, a father, a mother, and so on. With every new hat comes a new degree of challenge, learning, and wisdom. But when it comes to our professional life, most of us just wear one or maybe two hats. But today on the show, I have got to you someone special who has juggled through multiple hats all at the same time. My guest on the show today is an author, a speaker, a yogi, an actress, and much more. Everyone, please welcome Darlis Leons. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here with you. Hi. It's a pleasure to have you today on the podcast. Now, you've worn so many hats in the walk of life. Walk me through which one was first and how did, how did you decide to start wearing all these different hats? Yeah, you know, I love that you frame it as a decision because that is not how it felt at all. For me, it felt more like an accidental evolution. Um, mm -hmm. But I will say that ever since childhood, I loved writing. I loved telling stories. I loved literature. I loved um, kind of being imaginative and curious and, and embodied too. Like I would like love to dance. I love to, to do sports, you know, so I... So that was really who I was early on in life. And then um, I got away from that, CJ. So I, I went into finance. You know, I, I, just, I just became someone who wasn't really who I was inside. And so then I feel like for me, what has really happened since my early 20s has been a process of disentangling all the stuff that wasn't me and getting back to the me who I've always been. And, you know, when you talk about like multiple hats, as little kids, kids do that. You're like, you know, you ask a kid, what do you want to be when they grow up? And they're like, I want to be a ballerina and a firefighter and an astronaut and the president, you know, like they, they don't seem to feel a conflict between being able to be all of these things at the same time. And so for me, um, I think part of it has been getting back to my childlike nature and being able to say like, yeah, I want to do comedy, improv and acting. And I also want to make a difference in diversity, equity and inclusion. And um, and be in journalism and like, can I, you know, how can I do what I love and do the things that allow me to be me and allow me to give back to the world in a way where I don't feel like I have to make one choice and only one choice and commit to that choice in terms of what that looks like for the rest of my life. So it's been, it's been a weird evolution, but I feel like I've, I've gotten more and more back to my essential childlike nature over time. Well, that's one of the things that we're all struggling towards. When we're kids, we're told that, oh, you've got to be matured and you've got to think like an adult. And then as you transition into being an adult, you start realizing that you probably stepped into it way earlier than you should have been. And most of the people that I speak to, if I could ask them, like, what would be that one thing that you could change? Be like, and most of the people do tell me that I would like to have my same childlike enthusiasm intuition you know imagination and things like that so i'm so glad that you were able to step back and change that part now you you've been doing so much and i honestly don't know where to start 
um, you know, digging into your life. But you mentioned um, so many things, like you mentioned diversity. And you've written almost 20 books. Am I correct? Yeah, I think it's 22 at this point. Which 22. Is wild to me. But yes, I am first and foremost a, a writer. And it's, it's what I, I love to do. It feels like who I am, you know, at this point. Uh-huh. And like I mentioned in the beginning of the introduction, most people might have one or maybe two jobs. And everyone that I speak to is always pressed for time. And you don't seem to have that kind of a thing. Do you feel, do you ever feel like time's not enough or have you hacked a way to manage time? Talk to us some of your, like, how do you manage your time by doing so many things at the same time? Yeah, so I think that there seems to be a misconception that, um, you know, in order to do what we love to do, we have to be inspired to do that. And I have found that for me, it's all about sort of discipline and um, persistence. And, um, and, and it's weird because I do a lot of creative things, but I'm a highly structured person. So I write every day and I make time for that and I build it into my schedule. Um, just as, you know, if I'm in a play or a performance or something, like I build in rehearsal time into my mm-hmm. schedule it you know i think often people see the end product and they think like oh wow like this is so great you must have been so inspired you must have been so creative and i feel like no actually it's all about just like committing time like in any like in a relationship right like people don't get married and expect that oh okay well just by osmosis we're gonna have this great marriage like, no, you gotta make time for dates yeah. you gotta make like it so i think you know in terms of what I do, doing a lot of different things, for me, I think my strongest skill is probably just time management, that I, I will look at my schedule for the week and say, okay, so these are the things that are important to me, and this is the investment that I'm going to put in this week in order to get from where I am now to further along, along the path. And so like for me, it's, it's commitment, it's a lot of goal setting, it's a lot of sort of um, course correcting if I realize, oh, you know, I'm not as far as I want to be. It's it's a lot of making sacrifices and cutting away and pruning away the things that really don't serve my purpose in, in this lifetime or allow me to serve others. So I, I don't feel like there's too little time. I do, however, feel like it's my responsibility to effectively manage my time. And if I don't do that, then there's no way for me to get done what I need to get done. Does your calendar look very busy? Like you have everything noted down according to like, I've got to perform, I've got to write, I've got to think. Do you uh, carve out time for just not doing anything sometimes? I do carve out time for not doing anything sometimes. And I'm, uh, I'm very old school, so I keep an analog calendar. I'm not, I haven't been able to like digitize my brain yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if I ever will. So, so no, I mean, I don't think my calendar is overwhelming in that way. And I'm lucky in that I am a full-time creative entrepreneur, right? I'm a full-time owner of my own business. And so I get to do a lot of things, but I think, you know, if we worked for someone else, when I worked for someone else, I did a lot of things. I mean, people, I might've had one job like title, but I managed teams and I um, did everything from like, you know, uh bookkeeping kind of analysis stuff to grant writing to you know i mean there were just different things that fell under the umbrella of this one job and i think for the majority of professionals out there 
that is true. They do, they do a number of different things under this one job heading. And so I don't, I don't feel like, um, that's any different really when you're an entrepreneur. It's just, it just sometimes you get to like claim it in a more authentic way than, than someone mm-hmm. whose job is like people manager or something like that's awesome. But what does that mean? They probably do 30 different things under that umbrella. Have you learned or have you in all your experience found like something that can really hack into this and like someone who's listening to this who might have like time management problems could you give them like one or two tips that they can use which will like save them some time yeah it's gonna sound like the most counterintuitive thing um (laughs) but what has helped me is i have a daily meditation practice and a daily uh journaling practice which right it's like well how am i going to get more time if i take you know the 30 minutes or whatever it is every day to meditate and then journal like it it seems like that would cut into one's time however what i found for me is that i meditate to sort of clear that inner channel and get rid of the clutter and then i'll sit down and i journal i'm a big fan of uh, julia cameron's the artist way and so i'll write three pages you know every morning and it kind of like gets the clutter out of me. And towards the end of those pages, I'll really ask myself like, okay, well, what, what does my focus need to be for the day? And I kind of have a spiritual practice. So I'll also ask whatever is out there in the universe, you know, like, what do I, what, what, what am I called to do today? And then I'll get really clear on like the four things for that day. um, In addition to the things that are on my calendar. And then that's, that's what I do. And so I, like, I think if, if I were listening to this or watching this, as an audience member, and I didn't know the value of meditation and the value of journaling and spirituality, I'd be like, wait, this person is telling me to make more time and more effectively manage my time by taking 30 minutes out of my day to do this like fluffy thing. You know, it wouldn't make sense to me. However, Mm -hmm. having done this for a long time now, I can say that it allows me to really get super focused, to clear out the mental and emotional clutter um, and to, you know, and to prioritize what, what I need to do um, in a given day or, or, or a given week. So that would be my tip, but I think it'll sound like it's not going to work until someone actually starts to do it. I, um, I would also agree with Darlis, everyone who's listening, that it might sound counterintuitive, but every time you meditate, you're, like she says, you know, you're, there are certain regions of your brain which allow you to get, you know, like the executive and uh, the executive attention networks in the brain. There's a salience network in the brain. There's a default mode network in the brain. And most of these networks allow you to tap into executive management and into creativity. And one thing that happens when you do not meditate is that these regions of the brain are so cluttered and you don't get energy flowing through them. And when that happens, chances are you might just have a lot of time, but you might not be focused or you might not get into a state that we call flow and for anyone who's listening this is a very highly productive state where even if you have less time you can be super productive because you uh, merge different hemispheres of your brain ideas keep flowing so i completely agree with you Darius, and thank you so much for sharing that with us yeah i love it cj and something that just occurred to me in this moment i don't know how scientific it is but i love that you brought the science into it and, and the explanation yeah. but you know, if people are wanting to get more to their childlike selves, right? Like, I mean, if you think about a little kid, 
you're intensely focused on what they're doing. I mean, it's, and maybe also can sometimes lose that focus and then become intensely focused on something else. I'm thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, the kids in my own life or in my family, right? Like they're playing a game and they are, play, they are playing house like they have never played house before, you know, and they believe it and they're in it and they're enthralled and, and it gets so much more vivid. It, it comes to life, you know, and then when they're on to the next thing, they are fully and completely in that next thing. And I think that living life like that as an adult, trying to be mindful, I mean, something else that's been hugely helpful to me is I turn off um, the ringer on my phone most of the time, certainly when I'm writing or working or when I want to get into that flow state, because what happens for me, and I think it happens for most of us, is that I get, you know, my brain gets distracted and it gets pulled away. And then I'm spending more time kind of coming back to what I was doing and then doing the new thing. And can I, and and so yeah, I think trying to be mindful about my work and, and focus, and I don't work for a long time, but I really, when I'm there, when I'm working, I'm in it and I'm engaged and I'm doing what I can to really um, maximize my engagement with that particular activity or event. And I, and I would say that, that the meditation practice combined with that ability to, you mentioned flow, to like eliminate external distractions so that I can get in that flow is probably what allows me to be the most productive when when i can do it i'm not always perfect at it yeah it's uh difficult to tap into those states as well and one of the things um, that you've mentioned like and you would be very happy to know this is that it's not just you but every time and there there have been multiple research about this every time your attention gets caught out from what let's say you were writing something and your phone rang and maybe that's only for a split second you put it into silent mode and then you went back it takes a minimum of 15 minutes to a maximum of 25 minutes for you to get back into the zone. And this is one other reason why when you're at work and you have a lot of these colleagues coming and, you know, just before COVID talking to you, that always gets people distracted and productivity goes low. So there have been multiple studies about this. So if you're listening to this, make sure when you're working, that even the tiniest distractions can take you off the course for at least 15 minutes, it will be difficult. Now, you spoke about kids. We mentioned diversity before. Let's talk about your childhood. You grew up in a multiracial household. Am I correct? Well, so my dad is black and my mom is white. And um, I was primarily raised by my single mother um, until I was 11. And then she met and married a man who is also, um, you know, biracial like me. But throughout my childhood, I had a lot of um, black, white, and biracial and, and multi-ethnic influences, which was so, so cool. Like, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I did, I think um, an answer to your question, I know that's a very long answer to your question, but my household specifically was just me and my mom for most of my mm-hmm. childhood, but the influences that I had, I mean, I had um, a lot of black stand-in father figures and surrogate father figures and family figures and then my mom's white relatives and like a lot of biracial we were part of um biracial and interracial sort of like group and like so I I yeah I had a ton of cross-cultural influences and multiracial influences and it's been I I think one of the best parts of my life has been that exposure to the diversity within myself and then uh racial and ethnic diversity within the larger society that does sound very cool and do you credit 
your success and you know how you much you've achieved in life to that diverse set of thought patterns uh, and you know just experiential patterns that you've seen while you were growing up do you think kids which and we know that now there are so many people all over the world who are starting we're starting families which are multicultural multiracial and we all over the world people it's so easy to travel people get new opportunities they're moving to new cities with new jobs they're having so many different mixing so many cultures and the kids is really cool for them as you said because you get to see so much like you get to experience different cultures different traditions different practices but it also comes with various society biases and you know different identities and sometimes it could be hard to navigate through all of these things did you by any chance have a hard time navigating through things like these yeah so i heard two questions which was like do i credit my my diverse yeah. upbringing with my success sorry i have a habit of asking two questions at the same no, time no, I think it's perfect it's perfect but i just, so i'm like okay so um so that question and then also did i have any sort of negative experiences and um and i think my answers to those two questions really informed each other which is that i did not i'll answer the second question first um i did not have negative experiences as a result of my um racial and ethnic makeup at least that i know of like i mean i don't know what other people were perceiving of me or how they felt however um my perception was always one that people if anything it was like an opener of doors it allowed people mm -hmm. to feel um you know, somehow like I belonged everywhere, right? Like the, like I felt like I, I always kind of fit in um, anywhere I wanted to be and, and was always wanted and welcomed was my perception anyway. And so because of that, yeah, I think I never, I never really learned that there were, were places I couldn't go or that I wasn't allowed to ask questions or that I wasn't allowed to, um, to like stand out, you know, I think, I think that I was taught to be an independent thinker and a person who questioned the status quo. And so that has really allowed me to not have a ton of internal or external barriers in terms of my belief system. Like I don't, I've never held myself back from what I wanted to do in a conscious way. I'm sure I have subconscious, you know, biases mm. and beliefs and all of that that have gotten in my way and certainly for years I had an eating disorder and so that got in, in my way in some ways but um but yeah I mean I, I would say that that diverse upbringing really did teach me just the value the inherent value of people and the value of myself and the ability to stretch outside my comfort zone and the ability to kind of like I'll ask anyone how to do something that I don't know how to do you know? <laughs> really helped me and that's that's like, what we need that's yeah, what we need to yeah. talk to that person because of whatever like is going on with that i just so yeah i mean i would say it's really helped me for sure in terms of my my inner development but it's it's hard for me to tangle like what of my upbringing like what's my upbringing and then what's sort of the character and the personality that i came into this world with and then what's the way that i was parented which i think i would have been parented Similarly, whether I was um, like whatever my my racial background because of just the mother that I had, and so so yeah, it's hard it's hard to know exactly how it's it's affected my life in positive ways, but it absolutely has affected my life in positive ways. 
Um, and it's specifically impacted, I'm also the creator of a podcast called the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. And I wrote the book called Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And specifically the work that I do in diversity, equity, and inclusion is 100% informed by the ways that I was taught to think as a child, the experiences that I had of really believing that diversity is a beautiful thing and that we should be embracing unity through difference, right? And so I, I know that today I would not be equipped to do the work that I do or even be interested in it had I not had the childhood that I had and, and if I weren't a biracial person. So um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly, certainly shapes my professional life today. And I think it's shaped my whole path in ways that I'm maybe not even conscious of. Wow, that's beautiful. And um, it sounds so cool because, you know, the ability to just um, not be bounded by any restrictions and just going in there and asking for help and, you know, being welcomed is something certainly that all kids should experience. So thank you for sharing that. You brought up something else, eating disorders. So tell me about your eating disorder. When was this? Yeah, so... um depending on how like depending on when i'm telling the story right like sometimes i'll say it started when i was eight years old when my favorite aunt died of leukemia and i started to have fears of germs and i started restricting my food and then sometimes i'll i'll talk about like how it started i started bulimia at the age of 14 years old um and you know it was a long period of my life and i don't even want to make it sound like it's over like it's a one and done thing i think part of the reason that i live my life the way that i live it today is because of the eating disorder and because of my need to be attuned to my own my soul hungers you know which i wouldn't have mm -hmm. had i not developed um anorexia and bulimia so it, it was a long time i mean it was um if we count from age 14, I want to say until I was about 26, I was very actively anorexic and bulimic um, on and off. I was in and out of 16 different um, long-term inpatient treatment facilities. And um, I, I mean, I, the fact that I'm alive today is a miracle that I, I didn't, you know, die of an eating disorder is I, it's frankly unbelievable to me. Um, and then, you know, after my mid-20s, I'm 37 now, I'll be 38 in September. And um, and it's not like it was just a linear, you know, straight shot to freedom from that. But I but I certainly have never, you know, got, gotten back to where I was. I've never required hospitalization since the age of 26 or 27. And, um, and I've, yeah, but it, it taught me a lot. Like it taught me a lot to recover from an eating disorder and to be in recovery from an eating disorder, like about humility and the need for like loving myself in all flaws and all, you know, and showing up and telling the truth and being authentic and um, and doing inner work more so even than the external work of like striving for accomplishments and stuff like, okay, but can I take care of myself? Um, and can I nourish, you know, who I am on a soul level? And I, I think it's, um, the eating disorder has probably been my greatest asset and my greatest liability because um, I'm an intense person, you know, and, and so apply that to the eating disorder. And like, I really, I mean, I really went hard with this thing. I very, uh, very serious, very toxic um, addiction. And because that's part of my personality, like being able to shift that towards creativity and 
love and work towards inclusivity. Like I've taken that same kind of addictive energy and shifted it to my career and self-actualization and all these other things. And, and my life has really just taken off as a result of that. So I, I think that, yeah, I'm not sure if that completely answers your question. It does. Yeah, it's been a really long and complicated journey and one that I hope never end. Like, I hope I never stop recovering the self that was lost when I was in active eating disorder. Well, your story like partly reminds me of mine, but I did not have a serious eating disorder as yours. I grew up to, I was obese when I was growing up. I had a very hard time losing weight. And um, in the journey I did, I lost a lot of weight. And, you know, one thing is that when you're, when you first start to lose weight, even if you've reached your goal weight, you always want more. So I'm also that kind of person who takes things a bit too intensely. And there was a point of time in my life where I was fit enough, but I just wanted to push it to the next level. And that resulted in me just eating less, going, exercising like three times or four times a day. At that time, I didn't know that this was some kind of a disorder. But now I know that, you know, I was moving towards anorexia. I was losing so much weight. And then one day I would just wake up and binge eat for the entire day and then suddenly i realized that maybe i've had like 5000 calories and like 3000 of them came from ice cream that isn't good so let's go back to and repeat the whole cycle again and this carried on for about 2 years at that time i did not know this was a disorder but i eventually got out of it and it's interesting because a lot of people in the world have some kind of a eating disorder i get to know about it now much more that i talk to people from everywhere and people listen to the podcast and they ask me questions and it's a serious thing we underestimate the numbers but the last time i checked it was like 70 million people live with such eating disorders and being or having an eating disorder is also considered to be a type of an mental illness and there was a study that even showed that people have severe mental damages and they are more likely to be suicidal up to 50 times more when they have an eating order a disorder as composed to when they don't and even this subset of the population or have or have or will uh, abuse alcohol or some other kind of drugs uh, five times more than the general population so it's great that we're talking about this and we can address if someone in the audience is listening to this just make sure you have you take that time to invest in yourself just like Darlise mentioned i got out of it without a strategy i just grew out of it but she spent years so everything that she said take it seriously and embrace the imperfection not everyone is perfect perfection is illusion so know that you have it under control and um was there any like um either like someone inspiring in your life or someone who who changed the way that you were thinking some book or something that kind of like made you accelerate faster in this uh, getting out of that eating disorder journey yeah you know um so it's not something i talk a lot about um but for me it was really like a an intense spiritual experience. Like it was really realizing, I think I was always, always, always hungry 
for like, yes, food, you know, I had like an insatiable physical hunger yeah. um, or starvation or whatever, you know, and it, and it is interesting. There are like biological reasons why when you start, if your mind is wired the way that mine is, it's like impossible to stop these cycles. And, um, and so, you know, the, yeah, it, it, like there's definitely, I think a physical component to it and a physiological component to it. However, there was also underneath it all, I think like there was this deep hunger for meaning and purpose and love. And I used to, I used to feel like, I mean, this is going to sound real. This sounds really crazy to me now because I don't feel this way anymore. But if you relate to where I was, you'll really understand what I'm talking about when I say what I'm going to. I used to feel like, what is the purpose of all of this? Like, and meaning life, meaning myself, meaning existence, meaning like, like I just, didn't understand. And I didn't, I didn't understand like why people would get out of bed in the morning and function. Like I couldn't, I, I couldn't experience anything that other people told me they were experiencing in life. Like there was no joy. There was no purpose. There was no, I'm, even if I was doing a lot or achieved something, I'd be like, is this all there is? I mean, I had such inner existential angst on a daily basis. And so for me, it was really like, engaging in a process of spiritual cultivation and developing a relationship with, you know, something bigger than myself that, that has, um, that has helped me tremendously, it's just tremendously. And it wouldn't seem like that, but it does. And, you know, my conception of a power greater than myself is that like, there's something in me, there's a soul energy, there's a life force in me. And there's also a life force, a soul energy in everyone else, you know, I believe. And there's something you know, bigger, like some governing something like light source energy. Source energy. But yeah, whatever it is that like exists around us. And so for me, kind of coming into the consciousness of that is what shifted me out of the eating disorder, or at least got me willing to do the work to like not live in the eating disorder one, you know, one day at a time. Because until then I kept thinking that like the eating disorder was my problem. And so then, you know, I mentioned I was in treatment 16 times, like I wasn't continually binging and purging and starving for a, a decade of my life. But what would happen is I would stop doing it. And then I would feel like, is this all there is? Like, I thought that the problem was what I was doing with food. And so when I stopped doing what I was doing with food, and I still felt empty and damaged, and like I was dying on the inside, I would go back to those patterns because it actually made me feel better. Even though I knew that it was doing horrible things in my life, it made me feel like my soul felt quiet, you know, in those moments. And so for me, it's really been about finding something else that gives me that sense of like soul quiet, which is why meditation is so important to me and journaling is so important to me. And prayer and yoga and you know just like things that i do to really connect with my own inner essence and to connect with the people around me and um and with the meaning and purpose in life so that it again it feels like a weird answer to like what did you do for your eating disorder which people think is all about food but for me it was all about the, those deeper soul hungers and and so that's the level where i had to work and also at the same time you know i had to be willing to stop binging and purging and you know mm -hmm. do whatever it took to eat you know, new food that was going to sustain and nourish my body and, you know, like, and eat enough of it and, and, and all of that. So, like, so there is that kind of like practical skills, but what clicked things from the practical into like from the, what allowed me to maintain recovery, I guess I'll say has been connecting with some sort of spirituality.
That's beautiful. So you did tap into the invisible for some answers. That's interesting. Every once in a while, I talk to people and they have this similar habit of, um, you know, moving from the physical to the metaphysical or tapping into the invisible for a few things. And people who are listening to the show by now, they have a sense of how these things kind of work, but always none of us exactly know how it works <laughs> but thank you for mentioning it because that also opens up a, a curiosity within everyone because i believe that if you're always so narrow focus and like let's say in your example if you just think that food was a problem and you would just focus all your energy attention even money in food chances are you'll still be the same way but when you open at this could partly be because you know you have a creative side to you but anyone who's listening who doesn't have a creative side this is for you guys just keep don't narrow your focus onto anything think about the bigger picture think about what the situation is trying to teach you think what kind of information or instruction is coming from this or probably any other situation and it will lead you to a better path i don't know what that path is but you will figure it out now you mentioned yoga and you happen to be a certified yoga teacher Talk to me about why did you choose yoga and probably, yeah, I would not ask two questions at the same time. So why did you choose yoga? <laughs> no, um, I felt like yoga chose me or uh, actually, no, it was, so I was in the midst of therapy uh, for the eating disorder. I was like, you know, killing myself with food and binging and purging all the time. I didn't understand, like I didn't. I was going to see this therapist and she was lovely and really wanted to help me, but I wasn't willing to make any changes in my life, you know? So I would go see her and then I would go home and binge and purge. And then I was going to this job that I hated. And then I would come back every week and be like, yeah, my week last week looked the same as this week. And my week next week is going to look the same as whatever. You know, like I just was so stuck. And she said, you know, Darylise, like you, um, you have a total mind body disconnect. Like you're just so disconnected, your mind and your body. And so really, like, even if you're not willing to do anything, even if you're not willing to modify your behavior in any way, like, will you at least just try something that's going to get you back in your, get your mind and your body on the same page? And so she gave me some options and she said, you know, you can meditate or you can, um, uh, you know, go get massages or you get like, I forget what, what, how many options there were and yoga was one of them. And honestly, CJ, I picked yoga because at the time, you know, you mentioned your own like exercise obsession and the desire to lose weight. I was like, well, that's the only thing that burns calories. So I'm going to do the yoga because like, that's the only thing that's going to, you know, like I don't, cause I was still, you know, sick in my, in my eating disorder. I went to my first ever yoga class and the teacher said, take a deep breath and feel your feelings. And I took a deep breath and I sobbed for the next hour and a half. Like, thank God that the lights were, were off, you know, in this class. But I was like flowing and crying and upward, you know, dogging and downward dogging, like tears, like soaking my mat. And, um, and I just, at the end of it, I felt like, oh my, that was horrible. I never, ever, ever want to do it again. But then I also felt like, wow, there was some level of inner catharsis that happened. And with this is all the pain that my body is holding on to, like, you know, kind of no wonder, right? I feel the way I do all the time. And also, like, you know, I, I believe that it's a lot harder um, and also some really impossible to be in our bodies, like in our bodies, loving our bodies, connected with our bodies, and also willfully destructive towards our bodies at the same time 
And so I felt like some of my urges that day kind of dissipated, at least for the next couple hours, you know, my bulimic urges and just different things. I, I started to feel a little bit like lighter and freer, even though I had hated it. And so I just, I, you know, I went back and I, and I kept going back and I kept experiencing some of the benefits for myself. And then um, as a result of that, I became certified and started to bring some of those benefits to others. But yeah, like it wasn't, I didn't really set out to be a yoga teacher. I didn't even think I liked yoga um, in the beginning. And I just, um, I really just did it so that I could say to my therapist that I was taking some action. <laughs> um, and so I could burn calories, right? So like it didn't, it didn't matter why I, I got into it, but it, it, it changed me. It changed me from the inside out. So we, like you, everyone knows that yoga involves a lot of movements or asanas and those burn calories. So we, we, yoga has very well sold itself to the calorie conscious people. But now let's talk about the emotional aspect of it. You mentioned that during yoga, you felt like a lot of emotions release and you felt like, you know, so many emotions at the same time. What do you think was happening there? How does yoga, which is moving in different, like breathing and moving your body through space in different forms, which sometimes can be painful if you're, <laughs> if you're not mobile enough, but how does that affect your emotional or your energy being? Yeah. So, you know, the one thing I will say is that there are a lot of different forms of yoga and there are a lot of different yoga philosophies and yoga teachers out there. And there are those teachers that come at yoga from the standpoint of like physical discipline and, you know, let's be a size two or, you know, whatever it is that they're, that they're coming at it from. But I was blessed enough to have a yoga teacher that really did understand that there is a spiritual and emotional dimension to our physical bodies. And I think that that is why, for me, I experienced an emotional breakthrough was because, you know, this person was asking me to focus on breathing. This person was asking me to, you know, to tap into what I was feeling, you know, and I didn't do that. And I like, you know, in my external life, and I believe that it's possible to go to a yoga class and not do that and just sort of like power through, <laughs> like power through yoga in the same way that you might talk to one runner and they're like, wow, running for me is a meditative spiritual discipline. And another runners like I hate this I'm just doing it because I want to you know be in shape like it that yoga itself just offers a possibility I think to tap into what our bodies are telling us if we really sink breath with motion if we really kind of slow down and check in I mean for me one of the biggest blessings in yoga still today happens when you know I have the option of making a pose more intense and I choose not to and I choose to just like be in a child's pose or be in a posture that doesn't really require that much effort out of me and allow myself to feel that because I'm a striver in life. I've always been, I probably always will be. I'm a person who like is used to overpowering my body to get from where I am to where I want to be. And so yoga gave me the opportunity to experience what happens when I don't do that. What happens when I let my body be the thing that drives my movements? What happens when I allow myself to admit my human limitations? Like, and it, that has been so freeing for me. So I think that yoga has the potential to really offer a mirror 
to us. And if we want to look into that mirror, then like, and really see ourselves reflected accurately, it is a beautiful and painful and healing and transformational process. You know, should we choose to avail ourselves of it? Should we even be lucky enough to have the opportunity to, um, to work with a teacher that understands that instead of just understanding like physical postures? Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And every time I walk in and out of a yoga class, just basic lessons of life keep revolving in front of me. Like, for example, I, my grandma always used to tell me that CJ balance is the key to it all. And I, like you, am also a striver. So I never understood the concept of balance. It was always, you always have to push the pedal to the metal to the opposite end. And um, getting in and out of yoga class these days, makes me realize what my grandmother said was always correct and obviously life situations make me realize the same thing but balance once you're in the class it you have no reason but to like agree to this that you know once you're once you find your balance in things whether it be in life whether it be in a pose things start to get easier and move forward the second thing that i realized is that like you mentioned sometimes you have the option to go fast but it's only when you slow down you see a progress. You can power your way through some of the times, but then you might get an injury. You might get something twisted, some tears. But if you slow it down and don't rush into it, maybe it's a week, maybe it's three days, maybe it's a month. But eventually, you will get to that place where you want to be just by slowing it down. So I like how yoga presents all these different lessons. You also are an EFT practitioner. And for those of you who don't know what EFT is, it's Emotional Freedom Technique. But I'll let you talk about it. What is EFT and what do EFT practitioners do? Yeah, so the Emotional Freedom Technique, it was actually, it was uh, developed by a Stanford engineer named Gary Craig. So um, what he did was he sort of wanted to break down emotions to a level of like scientific understanding, which sounds really like weird and sterile, but um, but the reason that he was kind of, I guess, curious about this and set out to develop this technique is like, CJ, let's say that you and I were in a car together, we're driving in this car and right in front of us, we witness a horrible accident, right? Like we're both sitting side by side, mm -hmm. we witness the same thing. Um, and you are like, you know, maybe shaken up for a day or so, but you then you go on about your life and you're totally, you know, and, and you can function and everything's sort of okay. And I witnessing that same event, let's say like I'm completely incapacitated. I no longer want to get in a car. I wasn't even involved in the accident, but you know, I, I don't want to get into a car. I'm now afraid to leave my house. Maybe I'm like being very clingy to the people in my life. I'm afraid that they're going to die. Like, and, and so Gary Craig said, okay, so the two of you, you witness the same thing. So the event itself is not at issue, right? It's what, what happens within each of you that allows one person to react in such a magnified way and the other person to sort of have an emotional experience, but the emotions flow through them and they, and they get on with their life. You know, and we see it with grief. We see it, we see it with all these different things that some people are just stuck in certain emotional cycles and other people or not. And um, so what he did was he looked at the ancient Chinese systems of acupressure and acupuncture um, and, uh, and, and identified certain like 
meridians, certain body lines of energy running through the body and then certain points of energy along those lines of energy. Um, and, uh, and, and so EFT itself is like a tapping technique where you're, be, you're tapping on certain parts of your body while saying certain things, preferably out loud. Um, and the whole purpose of that is to get your energy to move from stuck to flowing and to get your attachment to certain events to shift so that we're no longer incapacitated by some of the traumas of our past, some of the belief systems that keep us stuck, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, that's like my shorthand explanation for what EFT is, but it's awesome. And it's been proven. They've done scientific studies on the value of it. And different people have different like rationales for why it's helpful. You know, some people are like, oh, it's mm -hmm. spiritual. And, you know, other people are like, well, you're working on the energy field. And other people are just like, well, you know, it calms down your energy system. So whatever the reason is, I don't know. I don't pretend to know. Um, it has been documented and demonstrated that it, it really supports people tremendously in breaking negative behavior patterns. It supports them tremendously in, um, you know, lowering their stress level and their chronic cortisol level to allow the body to better heal itself from different things. You know, it, it helps people to be able to move from where they are to where they want to be. So I found it incredibly useful for myself and then also incredibly useful for my clients. Amazing. And for someone who's listening to this, is there, a, can you teach us an EFT technique? Is there a, like something easy that we can learn within like 30 seconds and use in our lives? Is there a tapping point? Is there something that we say to ourselves that yeah. people can learn? So you said within 30 seconds. So I'll just give one specific uh, tapping point. I don't know if people can sure. see me, like right um, around the collarbone area. If you just kind of tap mm -hmm. with your hand and you take a few deep breaths and you just kind of keep tapping on that point while taking a few deep breaths. Um, and just that, I mean, you do that for maybe like a minute or so, and you can kind of just feel the body's energy slowing down and so that would be something that i would say is available to anyone you can do it at your desk at work you know if you don't mind mm -hmm. people seeing you tapping you can go into the bathroom you can do it not while you're driving but if your car is parked you know you can just do it while you're parked and it's really important though as you're tapping to just kind of take those deep breaths and see if you can feel the breath like trace the breath go all the way down into your diaphragm and even below that. And you'll just find like, just that will calm you down just a little bit if you're feeling in a heightened anxiety state or, you know, whatever, just experiencing any sort of negative emotion or heightened emotion. And you just, just want to kind of calm down a little bit. Love it. I uh, do a version of this every morning. So every morning I have this energy um, releasing um, routine that I have. It's Basically, it involves five Tibetan rites of longevity. Have you heard of that? I have. I've never done it, though, but I've heard of it. That sounds amazing. Yeah, so it starts off with, because as we're sleeping, most of our energy is in our lower two chakras of our body. And then these Tibetan rites, these are like the downward-facing dog and upward-facing dog, reverse tabletop. You have... Um, you have three more things which i don't know how to say their names but uh, people can look this up online and what this does is it releases the energy which are stuck in our lower chakras as we sleep and moves it upwards 
and it the energy basically travels all through your chakras and later after i do that i have a few other things which are borrowed from ayurveda traditional chinese medicine tai chi and one of those things is tapping so i make sure that i start tapping just from my legs and then my rib cage and then my heart and i'll just do the gorilla tap sometimes for 30 seconds and then i'll go through these points like over here the collarbone next uh, next to the nose the eyes on the top of the head and uh, i've been doing this for a while now and i see great like my energy my mood everything just goes up and you guys can try this online um with us if you if you were and you can do it at your desk as she said and please don't do it while driving you can do it while the car is parked yeah right well and i love you know i think too it can be you had asked earlier cj about a life hack you know if someone mm -hmm. notices but let's say because i'm a morning person too and i like do all my stuff in the morning and i feel like it fuels me throughout the entire day um and i find you know the mid-afternoon slump tends to be real for people right like where they're kind mm -hmm. of they do their stuff and then towards three o'clock in the afternoon it's like oh i'm sort of checked out for the day that can be a great time to incorporate any of these energy practices that you were mentioning or eft or something like five minute just a five minute thing in the afternoon and often that can power people through for the rest of the day or you know again if someone who's listening to this has a desire to maybe like let's say write a book or to i don't know take a new class or switch careers or something often people have to kind of do that at the end of their work day when maybe they don't have quite as much energy or they're not feeling mm -hmm. their best because they've already devoted like, their best to all the early day activities that can be a really great time to have some sort of energy practice so that then those next maybe like the two hours of your night that you're devoting to you um or to your career endeavors or whatever your personal aspirations are um like you know if you do that sort of before that it, it can really be helpful almost like how people will reach for a three o'clock coffee or something or a three o'clock like snack to get their energy up you can do something like this and it has those same the same benefits the same properties but maybe like without any of that energy crash that might happen mm -hmm. after you have like a bag of skittles or whatever it is or like a big uh big cup of coffee and you will be able to sleep at night again because coffee yes. will keep you up <laughs> right so we are almost reaching at the end of this interview and one of the things that i wanted to ask you was that you know times are changing in the last two years we all over the world people have faced multiple different challenges and this equates us to stepping into new hats to face those challenges now, for anyone who's listening, who's trying to navigate through maybe different challenges in their life, maybe different opportunities in their life, what have you learned in the past so many years of doing multiple things, which can probably help our audience, like whether it is, you know, how do you face adversity, right? Or how do you step in and take, be the change or, you know, adapt to change? What's your best life hacks? Yeah. Um, so I would say that I love the way that you frame the question. I, I think that sometimes our inner self is calling for us to step into a different role or do something different. And then I think sometimes our external world is calling for that. So, you know, so I would say if your inner self is calling for you to do something different, my suggestion would be to 
honor that and to kind of check in with it. And my, my best advice, my best suggestion around that is to take the time to get to know your inner self. So whether that's journaling, meditation, whether that's therapy, whether that's, you know, personal coaching, whatever it is, but like really kind of get to know who you are and what you want, because then there's such a roadmap that you can kind of craft. Um, if life is calling for you to do or be something different, I think, I think it's so really that foundational work to get to know like who we are and and and, and what we want to do. But I, I also think it's it's something bigger than that, which is like for me, you know, sometimes I ask the universe, like, who do you need me to be? What do you need from me? Because there's the things that I'm good at that I like, that I enjoy, but then there's also, you know, what does the world need? And I think that's how oftentimes people are able to monetize their contributions to the world. I think that's how you kind of move from personal passion to profession, you know, and making something actually like a sustainable living for yourself. Um, so I would say first get clear on like what lights you up inside, what are you going to be able to do for the rest of your life? What's going to get you up in the morning excited about um, about showing up? And then also, you know, what is what does the world need? So for example, I'm a writer, always going to be a writer, always want to be a writer, love, love, love writing. However, what I have found is that as the world was sort of unraveling in terms of race relations, in terms of the way that people treat one another, in terms of all those things, I got very clear that I wanted to use my writing gifts and talents um, specifically to bring about unity through diversity. And, um, and so I got very clear that I wanted my writing to be talking not so much about fiction these days, although I love writing fiction, um, but about, you know, real life happenings and world events. And so I focused more on journalism and I focused more on um, doing writing in the space of diversity. So, you know, that's an example of like, here's me. I'm a writer. Love what I do. I know that about myself. And also this is what the world wants from me. And sometimes our world can be, you know, smaller. Like maybe you have a nutrition counseling practice or something and you've got these tools that you really light you up inside and you're you know being pushed to do and then you're saying like okay well what is like what do other people need from me and you're noticing that you're attracting certain clients or whatever and maybe you need to research certain things to be able to better help those clients or what i mean it doesn't have to be like global scale stuff that we're talking about but just kind of focusing first on you who you are what you have to offer and then who needs it you know how can you show up and be in contribution mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And if you surprise, like, first of all, I must say that I love all the titles of your book. They are so fantastic. Like, all of them, one, like, your creativity just comes out in those titles, especially the Yoga Cocaine. I was, like, so curious to read the book. It's like, oh, wow, I just wonder what is this all about? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, so thanks for writing all of those 20 plus books, 22 books. Uh, for anyone who's listening, it takes a lot in writing. I'm not a writer, but um, I'm working towards my book. And countless hours, writing doesn't come naturally to me. But even when it does come naturally to you, I know that it is so much of hard work. So thank you for all the hard work that you've done and shared all of your books with us. Now, let's put on your imagination hat for the last time. 
while you're on this conversation. Yeah, and let's I'm so think. Excited. I was like, I'm not willing to put on my imagination. Yeah, just for this conversation. <laughs> and let's imagine that I gave you a time machine. And now you could step into the time machine and then you can go back to your 20-year-old self. And you can give yourself one, two, maybe three pieces of advice. What would be those three pieces of advice or like one piece of advice to your younger self, knowing all that you know right now? And I mean, you, can, you, you, you can't tell yourself to buy Bitcoin. I mean, you can, but not for this conversation. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Well, gosh, so <laughs> I want to say that my 20-year-old self like would never have listened to me, right? Like just would never, mm -hmm. ever, ever have listened to me because she needed to make all the mistakes that she made. Um, but I well, if you come out of a time machine, maybe she'll take you seriously. <laughs> maybe, maybe she would. Um, but I think what I would, what I would really want her to do was rather than trying to change herself, you know, in order to be loved or in order to be lovable, just to love herself like as she is now. And I think that would still be my same advice to myself, you know, now and 20 years from now and 30 years from now and at five years old and whatever. It's like, mm -hmm. just love yourself as you are um, now, today, like unconditionally, no strings attached. No, if I do this, then I'll love myself. When I reach this, then I'll love myself. Like, no, just love who you are. Fall in love with you. Um, and not in an egotistical way, but like, I mean, I believe that every single person is lovable and has gifts and talents and whatever. And that sometimes it's the belief in our unlovability that makes us do unlovable things. So I think I would have really told myself, like, just, just love you. Like, just love you. Thank and let you. your emotions be an extension of that self. So that, that would be my advice. She would have but then she would have gotten to 37 and like, yeah you were right <laughs> no thanks for sharing that and i think it's a very good um lesson for everyone who's listening just take us some time and love yourself it's however you are whatever you are however you are going to be it's you be proud of it love yourself thank you so much darly for sharing your time energy with us and sharing about so many things about your life I certainly learned so much and I'm sure the audience learned so much from you. Now, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way to find you? Oh, okay. So I'll give two ways. I have two websites that people can check out. One is sarahleesmonis.com and the other is demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com and there people can find throughout this my social media the podcast social media there's stuff about all my books there's ways that people can message me through the sites and i love hearing from people so um yeah daraleeslyons.com or demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com amazing thank you so much and um once again thank you for joining us today i hope you have a great day and this is me cj signing out from the shift with cj podcast Everyone have an energetic day, a week, a month, a lifetime ahead of you. Take care, everybody. Your time and presence with us through this podcast is highly appreciated. If you want to learn more, then head over to our website, 
www.shiftwithcj.com.